Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, we are phenomenally proud of our relationship with the University of Cambridge, who have for uh, 15 years now been bringing their brightest and greatest minds to the festival to share research on a variety of topics. And I would love to pay tribute to my esteemed colleague Mandy Garner, who has facilitated this over many years. Today, she has brought uh, the Miriam Rothschild Chair in Conservation Biology from the Department of Zoology, uh, to talk about uh, rethinking decision-making in a post-truth world, which is the world in which we, oh my God, live. Um, uh, he's going to talk to you for about 40 minutes and then very kindly agreed to take questions. Please give a very warm welcome to Bill Sutherland. Hi, my name's Bill Sutherland. I'm completely delighted to be here. I'd like to talk about facts, alternative facts, our dislike of experts, and that those sorts of general issues. I'd first like to say a little bit about how thrilled I am to be in Hayes as a scientist. I'm delighted to be at a literary festival. I'm delighted to go to the artist's entrance. Um, <laughs> I, um, they, they said, you know, I could do a book signing, uh, which, you know, I thought, I've seen uh, the, the big cues that Robert McFarlane people have, so I've, um, uh, I bought, you know, we can, I'm sure we can do it with orderly cues, uh, without, <laughs> no, no fighting at the back. I'm sure eventually you can all get it signed. I'd like to, as I'm at a book festival, uh, I'd like to make three points about books before I go on to uh, the meat of what I want to talk about. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to say this is my um, good friend, Greg Poole, very tragically died at a very early age, uh, a few months ago, and, I, and he's done the covers for a lot of my books. So I just want to pay tribute to him as a great artist and a good friend. <laughs> oh, thank you. In... I'd like to talk a little bit about the financing of books and the readership of books. So when I go around the world, I often ask for people to, uh, to show me their libraries and find out what they're reading. And there's a real problem of access to information globally. And so when I wrote this book, I discovered that the run-on costs, so the cost of producing an extra copy, is the same as the royalties. So I got the publishers to pay me in books rather than, than royalties. And what I say is, for these sorts of books, I know there's lots of serious authors here, but these sorts of books, you know, if you want, if you want to earn some real money, you want to get a paper round or um, uh, uh, get a job in McDonald's, you know, that's much more lucrative than writing a book. You know, we write books in order to get read. And so I set up this scheme with the Natural History Book Service, and the Christensen Fund funded it, where we gave these books around the world. And we gave over 3,000 books. Um, to, um, to people in countries that couldn't ever afford it. And since then, we've adopted that uh, uh, for a whole series of other books, and a number of publishers, particularly Oxford University Press, they just add another couple of hundred copies to their budget. They just say it just disappears. 
the British Ecological Society pays for the postage, Natural History Book Service pays to distribute it. And we get very touching emails from people who are really grateful of that material. So I think there's a real shortage of books globally that people could use. And I think we should, we should do a lot more to distribute it. And when I talk about this, people often say, well, what we should do is give out our second-hand books, our remainders. I kind of think we want to give them the best quality, most recent books, not, not sort of the old, the old out-of-date stuff. The third thing I'd like to talk about is, is open access. So um, there's been a big revolution in open access in journal publishing, but it hasn't really taken off in books. And this is a book, this is, um, which I'll talk about later. Um, and we've, uh, we've produced this open access, and that means that anyone can go and download it free of charge. And on this website, there's been 40,000 downloads. On other sites, there's been another 10,000. So about 50,000 people have downloaded and read this book. For that book, I, that from individual behavior to population ecology book I showed you earlier, I could probably name most of the people that have bought <laughs> that and read that. You know, so, so it's this fantastic in order to have that. And I put at the bottom this link from Peter Baldwin, and he wrote this article saying, why university open access laggards? And he talks about the history of open access and why we have copyright for writing and why that used to make sense. But he questions why we do do it now. And if you think about it, you, you've paid for us academics in order to, to work, to do research. You've paid for that to happen. We do this because we have to as part of our job, as part of our job promotion. So why then do you have to pay in order to read it? You know, we should, we should find ways in which you could just read a lot of science free of charge. So Open Books is great pioneers in this, but even we produce this book, making it another snappy title, uh, making a difference in conservation, linking science and policy. There's the cover. Uh, this is going to come out. But even Cambridge University Press, which is wonderful, but not the fastest moving organization, uh, they've gone for open access for this. We've encouraged them, and we hope that that's going, there's going to be a lot more open access books. And that's kind of really where we want to be. We want to be so that you could just read things and not have to cough up tens of pounds each time you want to read often material that you paid for already through your taxes. Okay, that's, that's my talk about books. Now I'm not going to talk about what I'm supposed to be talking about. Uh, naval history. <laughs> now, um, Vasco de Gama, uh, widely acknowledged as the first to sail around the Cape of Good Hope, although the Phoenicians might have done it beforehand. Uh, but he was the first non-Phoenician to sail around the Cape of Good Hope. And uh, of his 160 sailors, 100 died due to scurvy. And McGallan, of course, you know, he crossed the Pacific. He lost 80% of his crew, mainly to scurvy. Commodore John Anston, he went to the Caribbean. Uh, basically, I think he was a pirate, but anyway, he's uh, part of the British Navy. Um, he set off with eight men, came back with eight ships, 
I don't know, I'm telling you, you can read it better than I can. Uh, took out eight ships and 2,000 men, came back with one ship, uh, having lost huge numbers. Much of those losses due to scurvy. So scurvy was this nasty, horrible, disgusting disease that killed large numbers of people. So not surprisingly, there's a whole set of possible suggestions for how to deal with scurvy. Uh, one of the earliest was scurvy grass, which you would think of first given its name. Then lemon juice. Could avoid the sins of the world and resulting <laughs> divine chastisement. You can avoid foul vapor that thins the blood serum. You could eat turtles. You could have potato and onions. You could be buried up to your neck in sand. Or you could eat pickled skin. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's a whole range of potential options. So how do we know which of these are likely to work? Well, this is, I've got three heroes in this talk. This is one of the heroes, Captain James Lancaster. And he decided to do an experiment. So he, had, he was going from India, England to India. People always got scurvy on that trip. He had four ships. On one ship, he gave all of them three teaspoonfuls of lemon juice a day. The other ones, he didn't. And if there's any statistical nerds here, this isn't a perfect experiment. It's pseudo-replicated, but it's... It's still kind, of, still kind of good. And this is the results. So I don't know how many people there were on the first ship, but none of them got scurvy, and a third of them on the other ships got scurvy. So it's kind of not perfect, but pretty compelling. Uh, second hero is James Lind, uh, who was on the HMS Salisbury as a surgeon. And he thought, I know what I'll do. I think I'll do the world's first randomized, replicated, controlled experiment. <laughs> uh, there wasn't anyone with an iPhone, but there seemed to be an oil painter there who uh, painted it. <laughs> and he took 12 people and divided, who had scurvy and divided them into pairs and gave them one of six different treatments. So some had a quart of cider. Uh, some of these are better than others. Um, they got three teaspoons of vinegar three times daily in gruel. Uh, this seems to be sulfuric acid. <laughs> Seawater, oranges and lemons, and nutmeg garlic. I think, given the choice, I think I'd rather go down with scurvy than have to take all of this. And then he gave this to them to see what happened. And, um, and those that took the oranges and lemons got so much better, they were able to help with the experiment and give the sulfuric acid to the other sailors, <laughs> who incidentally had, apparently had very clean teeth. <laughs> so, so if you want to clean your teeth, you know how to do it. So having invented the randomized, replicated, controlled experiment, James Lynn went on to invent the systematic review which is now standard practice in medicine. Uh, and you complained about it in the cover of my book. This is a treaty on scurvy in three parts, containing an inquiry into the nature, causes, and cures of that disease, together with a critical and chronological view of what has been published on the subject. Snappy little title. <laughs> and what he did was he said, I'm not interested in your opinions. 
I want to know what you've observed, what your experience has been. And he collated all of those experiences and made various recommendations about the health consequences and what would work and what wouldn't work. Uh, and that sort of very much outlined many of the possible solutions. So let's go through those dates again. Uh, 1583, uh, oranges and lemons were suggested. 1601, James Lancaster did that experiment, showed it worked. James Lind did his bigger experiment, showed what worked. James Lind produced, reviewed all the evidence, showed what worked. And as a result of this, the Royal Navy leapt into action. <laughs> as a result of the success of that, the Merchant Navy rapidly followed suit afterwards. <laughs> but the remarkable thing is that in that time, and I've given a slightly simplified version of any historians, I apologize, it's, kind of, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. But the, um, in that time, there was something like a million deaths due to scurvy. And yet, and they sort of had many of the answers, but somehow that wasn't pulled together and used. I'm going to give another example of the same process. So um, uh, my parents used this book, James Spock, Benjamin Spock, um, along with 19 million other sets of parents. And one of the issues is, do you put your child to sleep on his or her front or back? And Benjamin Spock had the answer. There are two disadvantages to a baby sleeping on his back. If he vomits, he's more likely to choke on his vomitus. I think that's extremely sensible. If you're on your back, you're likely to choke. If you're on your front, it'll just come out. That is very sensible, practical advice. If he vomits, he's more, uh, also he tends to keep his head turned towards the same size, usually towards the center of the room. This may flatten that side of his head. It won't hurt his brain, and the head will gradually straighten out, but it might take a couple of years. If you start early, you might be able to get him used to turning his head to both sides by putting his head where his feet were. If there are any young parents here, bear this in mind. Uh, where his feet were the time before, each time you put him to bed, etc. So, uh, I think it's preferable to accustom a baby to sleeping on his stomach from the start if he's willing. He may change later um, if he uh, learns to turn over. So this is actually, you know, what Spock is doing is he's just thinking about it and coming up with what I think is quite sensible advice when you just think about it. And then uh, over a decade ago, there was a systematic review that pulled together all the evidence, or over a decade ago, all the evidence as to whether or not uh, it's better to put your child asleep on the front or back. And the answer, surprisingly, was exactly the opposite and that it was compelling evidence that you put your child to sleep on his or her back. And you're, I'm sure you all know about this, the Back to Bed campaign, and there are campaigns like this around the world. And that's great, and that's how science should work. But the interesting thing is that the researchers then said, so when did we first know about this? When did we first have the compelling evidence? And the answer was, well over a decade earlier. And you can show this has a massive effect on cot deaths. And you can then say, supposing we'd started doing this over a decade earlier, how many children's lives would we have saved if we'd have put this in place? And the answer across the Western world is roughly 60,000. So it's kind of hard to think of anything that is more important to society 
than stopping babies dying. And yet we have evidence there that isn't used and isn't taken to practice. Um, and partly as a result of those sorts of peculiar positions, we've now changed so evidence-based evidence medicine has become routine uh, and widely adopted. What I'd like to do is say, outside medicine, that's a very rare thing to do, and we need to have similar ideas elsewhere. So just example, I'm a conservation biologist, and we went and asked practitioners where they got their information from, and occasionally it's from primary publications, from the science, whatever, but mainly it's just common sense, chatting to their mates nearby, very rarely chatting to their mates further away. So it's just like medicine used to be in the 1970s. You just have some experience, read a bit, chat to a few people, and do that, and not use a common database. So you can very crudely say, if you look at this, is, don't take this very seriously, if you look at a range of studies and say how many interventions are in, ineffective for medicine or agri-environment schemes or in a journal we've got, and you take the very lowest figure, and take the lowest range of that, and then work out how much money we spend on conservation, then perhaps we spend a billion dollars a year on stuff that doesn't work. And, and that's immensely speculative. All I'm saying is you probably spend a lot of money doing things that don't work, and that's a bit peculiar. The slides seem to take, the slides for some reason are slightly stroppy, but it'll be there, I hope. I'll have a quick drink. So, uh, so one of the first things we do, we're really interested in doing, is saying what's the wide range of possible options of things you can do? So here, we're interested in the specific issue of what do you do if there's a predator that eats the bird that you're trying to conserve. Uh, and so there's David Williams who did this as a, as a cow for scale. Um, we said, what are the possible interventions that you could do? Uh, you'll be tested on this before you're allowed out. <laughs> this is just the range of different things you could, including playing Radio 4. I've been, uh, they do that on the swans at Abbotry. I've been interviewed by John Humphreys, and I can tell you that that would scare off any predator. It's scary for me. <laughs> so the process we have is what we call subject-wide evidence synthesis. And what we do is we do reviewing on an industrial scale. So we take a topic like bat conservation, and we say, what are the threats? And one of the threats is that bats, well, they don't fly into wind turbines. They get close to wind turbines, and it pulls their lungs out, so they die. Really horrible, anyway. Anyway, bats, bats and turbines are not a good combination. So, so what could you do? And we make a list of all the different things you could do. You could switch off the turbines at low speed. You could deter using bat ultrasound. You could deter bats using radar, et cetera, et cetera. Here are all the things you could do for this particular problem. And then... We've been reading, we have a series of postdocs locked in a cellar in a dark room with no windows, not allowed out, uh, who read all the main conservation journals, and in this case, all the major mammal journals, and they've read 
350 journals, looked at almost well over a million journal titles, and pulled out the small number that test interventions. And normally, in most areas of policy, we tend not to test things, and that make, that's what makes it possible. So you can list all the papers that test an intervention on bats that we pull out from those papers, from those journals. And then we just slot one under the other to do that, to do a review. So normally when people do reviews, they pick one topic and do that, and, then, and that costs 100,000, a quarter million. Then they pick another topic, and they do it one at a time. What we do is we do it on an industrial scale. We take a big topic, such as bird conservation, and we'll do a few hundred reviews at one time. So this just shows we review this for birds and bats and all sorts of things, and we think we can review for all habitats and taxa. So what does this look like? So conservation evidence. This is the website that's the best way of looking at this. So let's look at the problem of roads. There's lots of roads. There's lots of, most of these pictures weren't taken in the UK. There's, um, uh, there's lots of problems with roads and wildlife. It's quite a big problem. So what can we do about that? Uh, so there's a whole set of, you can build overpasses, you can build underpasses, you can just look at them. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things you can do uh, and see what works. So if you go to the conservation evidence site and you type in roads, it says there's 37 different actions that you can carry out. Uh, the top one is install culverts or tunnels for amphibians. Click that and it'll tell you about the, six, the, the consequences of uh, installing road culverts and tunnels as under road crossings for amphibians. And it'll tell you whether or not it works or not, but particularly it gives you lots of fine detail whether or not the substrate works, the consequence of lighting, the length of it, whether or not water was there, all of these sorts of details. And we then, um, for technical reasons I won't go into, we, we get people to assess how effective it is and how certain it is, and we then say whether or not this seems to be beneficial or, harm or likely to be beneficial, and so on. So we can classify each intervention. So at the top left, it says there's a trade-off between benefit and harms for this intervention here. And there's a little map to show the source country. I wish I hadn't done a screenshot while my in, <laughs> that was in, anyway. And then, in the heart of this is we then have a, you click that through for those studies, and it'll tell you the detail of each study. So we produced the world's most boring books. We produce a book in which it's just a series of paragraphs. Each one is the same. This is where the study was. This is when it was. This is what was found out. This is the methods, and so on. Through the plot's terrible. It just goes through like that for every, all conservation actions to do with amphibians, say. Uh, and, and, and one of the striking things is how few studies there are. And really, the two measures are we really want to pull everything together and we really want to test it. Because there are things that people assume work that don't necessarily work. So you can build 
Like in Peterborough, there's a tunnel that goes uh, straight into a nature reserve so things don't get run over. Fantastic. Let's put a camera on, see what happens. My colleague Sylvia Petrovan does that. And um, the cats love it. <laughs> so they can get onto the nature reserve and hunt things without getting run over. Uh, and they can feed on lizards and things as they go by. So, so we need to accept that the natural world is complicated, that decision-making is complicated, and we need to work out whether or not it works or not. We need to accept that complexity um, rather than just assume things work. So what I said earlier is we need to do this on an industrial scale. Rather than picking off topics one at a time, we've done 1,500 reviews, we've finished another 1,000, we think we've got the money to finish all conservation habitats and taxa. So we think we can, without, in a few years' time, have a review of everything to do with interventions related to conservation. So you can just go and look it up. And that's where I think we want to be. First issues I'd like to talk about. One is that uh, with Tatsuya Mano, I've heard a lot about the Japanese education system, but he's teaching his daughter by reading nature which kind of says a lot about why people are so clever in Japan. Um, and Tatsuya has shown that 35% of the literature on biodiversity conservation isn't in English. It's in um, Portuguese and Spanish and Chinese. And yet this is completely ignored when people are reviewing the literature and talking about it. Not only is that offensive, but we're missing things. You know, we missed the, the big drug for malaria because that was published in a Chinese journal. So for a long time, we didn't know about that. Um, and also for local conditions. If you want to know what's in South America, happening in, what to do in South America, if you haven't read the Portuguese and Spanish literature, you're going to miss out on most of the major solutions. So we need to do this. Uh, and, we've, and we're busy doing that. Uh, we, we've pulled out information from 150 journals, we read 350,000 uh, journal titles, pulling all of this into a database. Uh, we've done 10 different languages, so we've got everything sitting there. So what I'm saying is that you can pull out, if you do it on an industrial scale, if you think about it differently and say rather than picking off topics one at a time, let's do it in a strategic way, you can pull together the literature and have it sitting there waiting for you when you want to use it. What I'd like to do now is talk about how do you convert that into making decisions. So this is, we wrote a piece on decision-making, uh, and Nature did this little cartoon. I think that's me up there with my white coat pointing to the graph without any axes. And I think the decision-makers all just seem to fold bits of paper. Uh, but anyway, so how, how do you make decisions? So. One of the first things you want to do is have the information accessible. So um, if you look at uh, what works in conservation, we pull together the information for the issue of bycatch of seabirds in fishing nets. So the problem with fishing is you accidentally catch seabirds. And what can you do? Here we've reviewed all the evidence for what could be done. Now, interestingly, after we'd finished this, there came out another review published by the European Union, which had done the same thing. 
that said, let's look at the interventions for, for uh, seabirds and how you stop it. Uh, I'm pleased to say ours is slightly better. They're both basically the same. We, found, we looked at slightly more interventions. We found slightly more papers. Slightly more of them are peer-reviewed. That's kind of, you know, but they're both kind of about the same. The critical thing is I then went to the EU and said, how much did it cost? How, no, I said, how long was it before you're having the idea and you're getting the report? And they said, 34 months. And I said, how much did it cost? And they said, 134,000 euros. And ours, so we've paid for this, but once you've got it, you can just look it up in minutes for free. So the analogy is, supposing, supposing you went to the doctor and you said, I've got, and I've got Ebola, and they said, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll do a review of the literature. Um, come back in 34 months' time. By the way, you haven't got 134,000 euros on you. That's kind of, that's ridiculous. We want the information sitting here now. That's the way we work nowadays. But in policy areas outside medicine, we don't have that. We just wait in order to do reviews a few years later. That's insane. We want everything sitting there, and that's why we're doing this. So does that make a difference? So before our bird work came out, we went to people who were professionals whose job involved dealing with endangered species of birds, which were eaten by predators, which they're trying to stop. And we said, what interventions do you know about? And we showed that about 40% of them they hadn't heard of. And our experience is this is usually the case in policymaking. There's a list of things you can do, but people have blinkers on, so there's a section that they haven't heard of, and so they, can on, they only know of a limited number of options, and there's other stuff they don't consider because they don't know it exists, and we want to overcome that. But we then said, having read this literature, would you change your mind? And 46% of people said, well, actually, we'd do things differently, this shows them sorted by effectiveness, so those on the right are more effective, and they're much more likely or more likely to do those as a result of reading the evidence, and they're much less likely to do the ineffective ones. So there's a real problem of shortage of evidence. The other issue I'd like to talk about is what we call evidence complacency. When we started off this work, we started off doing this work in 2004, the big issue was access to information. Uh, the internet wasn't terribly powerful, a lot of material wasn't open access, conservation evidence didn't exist, etc., etc. We now think the problem is what we call evidence complacency, which is where the evidence is available, but people choose not to use it or choose not to uh, th uh, think things through. So the two examples we gave is the European Union decided to rethink the common agricultural policy and the agri-environment schemes. Uh, and so they're spending many billions of euros a year on investments, but they didn't look at the evidence beforehand. And if they had, they would have seen that the options they selected had little evidence associated with them, and that evidence would suggest that they weren't very effective. And that's what happened. So looking at the evidence presumably would have saved an immense amount of money and time and effectiveness. The second example we give is what are called bat gantries, this photo here. So they're bat gantries, they're somewhere on the A11 for those of East Anglia, but then 17 different places 
when you drive along, if you see these curious things, uh, they're bat gantries to encourage bats to fly across the road and not get killed. And they've been in 17 different locations without being tested. Um, there's a group in Leeds uh, who weren't involved in this, but just decided to test these. And when they tested them, uh, when they tested these bat bridges, uh, it turned out that bats could fly. Um, and they didn't actually need these bridges. Um, so they, they just ignored them. And I'm, I'm actually sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to the creation of the prototype. Um, you know, to say, this is not a stupid idea. You know, that to say we could build something like this and bridges might, bats might fly up and fly at a higher height. And you could test that. Ideally, you'd want to test that in a field. I know the Vincent Wildlife Trust is doing work like that. Test, test it. Or you'd create the first one and test that. The thing that I am damning about is that you have an idea, and the idea, and it goes from idea to best practice without being tested in the meantime. And that's the thing that undermines an awful lot of policy making, and that just wastes a lot of money. Okay, as an expert, uh, I'd now like to go on slightly worrying ground um, and talk about this is building on how you use the evidence. I want to work out how we can actually make decisions. Our experts, experts. So Philip Tetlock uh, wrote a very interesting book, and he um, got 128 people whose job it was was to make pronouncements as to what's going to happen in the future. So journalists, politicians, commentators, all these sorts of people. And he gave them 82,000 forecasts. So he said, does this thing stay the same or go up or go down? So is the exchange rate for the pound by the end of the year, is it going to be higher, the same, the lower? Are the number of Tory MPs at the end of the year higher, staying the same, lower? Etc. Etc. You have all of these. Make lots of those. 82,000 of them. And let's see what happens. Uh, and it turns out that they're less good than if you just extrapolate. So if you say something's been increasing and it's likely to be increasing, that's actually better than asking an expert. Uh, and and I know you've had a very good time here listening to lots of famous people. But the bad news is that the more famous they are. <laughs> the more likely they are to be wrong. So what I suggest you do is remember, I've had a good time at Hay, but don't remember anything you've learned here. <laughs> and you can sort of see why this is. Because suppose you, know, you talk about, I don't know, a, a political issue. What's going to happen in Saudi Arabia? What's going to happen in the Labour Party or whatever? That if you say, well, it's going to all, over the next three months, I think it'll all stay the same. Well, that's kind of pretty boring. But if you say, well, actually, I think we're in turbulent times, all these exciting, that's great television, and you'll get invited back. But you're probably wrong. So, inverse um, to fame and accuracy. Oh, sorry, and accuracy. So the more, the more public pronouncements you make, the more better known you are, the less likely you are to be right. So why don't, why use experts? Why don't... We just follow the evidence. That's what everyone says. Just do what the evidence says. Because you can't. Because, oops, because 
you need experts to identify the problem, identify the solution, shortlist them, decide on how you're going to assessment, decide what literature you're going to look at, how you're going to search for it, what data you're going to do, how you're going to weight the different studies, how you're going to collate it, how you're going to interpret it, how you're going to present it, how you're going to draw the conclusions. You need people to do all of that. So you can't just say, I'm going to look at the evidence. It involves judgment at lots of stages. So you have to use experts. So use of experts is problematical. I can say this as an expert. Uh, experts are pretty useless. But experts are essential. So what I'd say is we need to use them as well as possible. So we should think about ways in which you can use experts that are more effective. So firstly, I'd like to say one common mistake is to ask an expert to make a decision for you. And the reason why that's a, f a mistake is it's extremely unlikely that they will share your values. So if you want, you can ask me, as an academic, what I think you should do, and I can tell you. You need more research. You know, it's, it's, uh, you, know you don't trust me. You, know, you want someone whose values you share in order to, uh, to work out what to do. So what you want to do is to get experts to think about the facts and create the judgments on the facts and then you take those judgments on facts and combine them with your individual values and your experience and decide what to do. You've got to tease apart your values and the, ev and the evidence and put those together. And that's what uh, makes sense. So, we, um, uh, so we've been thinking about how you use experts with my colleague Mark Bergman. Uh, Nature also did this cartoon. Surprisingly, a number of people asked why there's a picture of me riding a badger. Um, but anyway, so it's a very interesting topic. And this is the heart of the problem. That there is, there is genuinely such a thing as expertise. Now, I don't for a minute want to say there's no such things as expert. Should any of you go for heart surgery, I really strongly suggest you get a heart surgeon to do that. And similarly, if, you get a, if you've got a plumbing problem, get a plumber in. There is genuine expertise. But the problem is that expertise drops off very rapidly with distance away from your subject. So as an example of this, uh, I did a PhD on oyster catchers. I think I'm an expert on oyster catchers, so I'm way up there with the, expert, the expertise. Uh, I reviewed, uh, I uh, ran projects on Brent geese. Know a little bit about, less about them, but I know quite a bit about Brent geese. And then I was on a, a government panel uh, to look at the literature and the problem of badgers. Uh, and yeah, don't don't laugh. I'm I'm an expert on black and white animals. <laughs> so I was I was brought in to do this. And then I was on a government panel, a, a research council panel in which we were rethinking the structure of the research stations. And I can remember saying, look, I'm an expert on oyster catchers. He's a population geneticist. She looks at ecosystem services. He's a volcano expert. What are we doing saying this is how um, uh, research councils should be reorganized? We're not expertise. So the heart of the problem is that when you test it, people's expertise drops off very rapidly as they move away from their subject, but their confidence, their belief in their knowledge, 
rubs off a lot more shallowly so that they believe they're experts in things, but when you actually test them, they're not. So if you look at the evidence on experts, we come across a number of conclusions. The first one is that the two worst ways of using experts is to judge, is to ask a single expert, or to bring a group of experts together in a room to make a collaborative decisions. They are, not that we ever do that for anything important, but they are the two worst ways of making decisions. So we know group experts are better than individual experts. Uh, sorry, group estimates are better than individual. We know, as I said, it trails off. We know that it's very difficult to identify who's going to get things right. And again, there's an issue, so there's a certain level of knowledge you need. But above that, most of our measures of expertise actually don't correlate at all with how likely you are to get it right. Uh, if you have a diverse group, you're more likely to get the right answer. This is interesting. So you've all been in meetings, and someone will say, Look, it's obvious. The answer is this, and you have to be a complete gibbon to think otherwise. Uh, and there might be someone else who says, well, I'm not really sure. It's sort of kind of complicated, and I don't think but there's a bit of a case for this, and there's also a bit of a case for this. And overall, I probably think that I'd go for the first one, but I'm not sure. That second person is more likely to be right than the first person who authoritatively goes for it. And there's often a sex difference uh, in those as well. Um, you can wait by um, a number of studies showing that you can say who's been getting things right in this area and, and, and then waiting their results uh, so you take them more seriously. And you can provide them training. So if you provide training uh, on probabilities and, and various things, you increase people's an hour's training increases people's ability to get things right by 10%. It's a big difference. Uh, and I had to just briefly talk about my third hero, uh, Crisius. Uh, he, he wanted to use oracles, and he wanted to know which oracle is likely to be best. So he tested them. And he sent emissaries to seven oracles to ask what the king is doing. I'm rather tempted to do a sort of Bill Bailey and pick a member of the audience, but who's going to, what do you think the queen's doing now? Yes? Having lunch. Having lunch. Okay, that's kind of good. So, um, so Crisius did this, and one of them said, the oracle at Delphi said that the king was making lamb and tortoise soup in a copper kettle, and was correct, Are you, were you suggesting lamb and tortoise lunch? <laughs> So if that's kind of a deeply impressive. So based on that, which is kind of quite a rigorous way of identifying, uh, Crisius decided to um, uh, trust uh, Delphi. So he wanted to know whether or not to attack Persia. So he consulted Delphi and said, should I attack Persia? And the, Delphi, the oracle at Delphi said, if you cross the river, a great empire will be destroyed. It's not, it's not quite the yes or no you're looking for, is it? So, um, so he knew he had to cross an, uh, a river, so he did cross a river and attacked and lost, and his empire was destroyed. So, um, so Delphi was probably right. Anyway, it's a bit of a rambling, so he 
What I want to do is to say the most, one of the most powerful ways of using experts is a process called the Delphi process. I'm so obsessed with this, I dragged my family on holiday to Delphi. Uh, and how does that work? And it's named because of the oracle, a bit of a curious name. So you identify a problem. So what's the exchange rate going to be like at the end of the year? You present the evidence. Here's the trends. This is the factors might affect it. Here's the world economic situation, et cetera, et cetera. Here's all the evidence you want to know. And then you get a group of experts who independently provide their estimate of what the figure's going to be. And quite often, this is done anonymously. Often, this is done online. And you see this is the distribution of results. And you know where you are. And you know where, where everyone else is, but you don't know who they are, so you can't get obsessed by prestige and all those sorts of things. And you know what the evidence is. And if you're an outlier, then you're expected to justify that. And you can stay as an outlier. You can say, well, I think it's going to be very high, and this is why, and these are the reasons, and I'm going to try to convince everyone else and see whether or not they accept that. And you just do that a number of times uh, and repeat it uh, and present the results. And that, when you do tests in all sorts of ways, this is one of the best ways of getting the right answer uh, for unknown problems. Uh, so, so what I've talked about is what we can do for conservation in terms of collating the evidence as to what works. What we've now we decided that wasn't a big enough project. Um, what we're interested in now we call this the mad plan. We need to have a better name. This is what we're doing is we're trying to collate a list of all the solutions to all the problems outside medicine to work out how you would solve what, what all the different options are across the board. So this is option scanning on a larger scale. Uh, and then having done that, we then want to work collaboratively people, largely with people, the bot work centers and things like that. We think it would cost about 20 million pounds to review all the evidence on everything, on the interventions, on everything, including conservation. So you could just look it up. You could say, for governance, for dealing with child poverty, for um, reducing crime, for reducing knife crime, what are they, all the options for reducing knife crime around the world, and what's the evidence? Why can't I just look that up immediately and see what that is? That seems to me a way we should be moving. So, so there's lots of talk about evidence-based policymaking. And the problem is that the reviewing of the literature is so expensive, it's sort of 100,000, a quarter million pounds a pop. It just sort of stops it in its tracks. And you then think, oh, how are we going to do that review? And it becomes, the process becomes reviewing. What I'm saying is I think we can, by this, doing in this industrial scale, by sort of planning ahead, and, and searching the literature rather than doing one at a time, we can review the global literature on uh, evidence synthesis, including elsewhere. So we can achieve that. If you have that, then we have some other fields that we really want to concentrate on. And this is where the future is. We want to think, how do we assess the evidence? How do you look at, here's the global evidence, how do I relate that to my particular conditions in Hay-on-Wye? I want to build a toad tunnel. Let's look at that global evidence and work out which studies make sense, which ones I'm going to use, and so what I'm going to do. You want to say, how do you make decisions once you've got that, you've got the evidence, you've assessed what it means, 
You then want to say, let's look at the cost of the options. Let's look at my values. You know, I don't like the idea of toad patrols because it'd be, uh, people might get run over, and I don't want to build tunnels because that kind of means messing up and slowing up the traffic, etc. You think of all of that, and then you make your decision. And again, that's quite cheap. And then you can deliver. You can then say, you can have tools such as applications or plans, build it into management plans, those sorts of things. That's not very expensive either. And then if you want to deliver on it, if you want to start building road systems, then that's going to cost you a lot of money. But then that's just, that's just implementation. So once we've got through evidence synthesis, the rest of these processes are a lot cheaper. And that's really where we want to be thinking in the future. So what I'm saying is at the moment, we say, here is a problem. And what we do is a group of experts to get together, and they're wired. It was a strokey beard moment it was described earlier. All these people shows, shows how sex bias and a lot of these decision makings. Um, uh, people go around and then say, this is what we should do from our own experience. This is the best idea. So let's just not do that any longer. Let's instead use expert elicitation, the sort of Delphi technique, those sorts of things, modern decision-making techniques, to assess the existing reviews by the evidence we've already collated, to give a judgment as to the facts and what the facts mean, so that you can then take those and decide what to do combined with your values and local experience. Um, I seem to have started again. Um, so these... I I'm not going to provide easy quotes. These are difficult problems. But I, um, I think we can make a difference if we have evidence presented in different ways. So if you, and we're seeing a lot more questioning of, of, and more demands for evidence, and I think when the evidence is just sitting there, it's much harder for someone to criticize because it's not one person arguing and another person arguing. You can just say, well, here's the evidence base. Let's see what that says. And what's your explanation for criticizing that? On the whole issue of Brexit, that's largely a failure. The, the government issue, for me, is a failure of the decision-making process. I believe that if we'd have had a set of votes, ideally a set of single transferable votes, including May's option, and had just gone through all those and said, what is the option that the House of government, the government could live with, then that would have meant we wouldn't have got into this problem. It's a problem of the decision-making process. It's a voting process, the result of that. It's a decision-making process. And, um, and back for experts, or, um, Michael Gove, I think, has sort of rather regretted that. This is... I never thought I'd say this. This is me with Michael Gove releasing a beaver. <laughs> That's one sentence I didn't expect. But he's, and, and he's, he's now interested, he's now, he takes information seriously in DEFRA. He takes um, uh, the use of evidence pretty seriously in those decision making. So I think there is, there is some hope there. But I think if you have more evidence sitting there and waiting to be used, it's much harder for you to come along and criticize. I just want to say, here's the evidence-based team, the great group of postdocs from around the world on a training program. Uh, and they're the ones that have produced all this wonderful material. And finally, um, I don't want to be pessimistic. I'd like to end on an optimistic note. We've seen lots of uh, protests. 
this is what do we want? Evidence-based change. When do we want it? After peer review. It is notable there's only one poster that says that, but it's kind of it's moving the right way. Uh, and here are my daughters. The, um, uh, the youngest is just doing her A-levels and about to go to university, so it's quite an old photo. Quite a serious condemnation of me as a parent, really. <laughs> so what I've hoped to convince you is that we can do policymaking differently. And what it really requires is thinking about planning ahead, having the material available so that you can just refer to it when you, so it's available for anyone to look at. So anyone can see what is the evidence. And then taking that and using that in much more sophisticated ways than the way we do at the moment, if you ask an expert, a chief scientist or whatever, or you get a group of people in a panel to say what happens, they are very ineffective ways of getting to the right answer. And I think we can do this whole process much more effectively, uh, and I think that'll be to everyone's benefit. Thank you. We have some time for questions, and um, our, stewards are, our stewards are going to make the decisions. So butter, butter them up, charm them. I've told them if you look as though you're going to ask an unpleasant question, that they've got to avoid you. Professor Sutherland, thank Bill. you. Bill. Um, have you done any research into the... Uh, have you looked at the evidence of the propensity of politicians to take evidence into account in making decisions, and whether you can, whether you can change that propensity, what changes that propensity? So, um, so civil servants take this very seriously. Um, you're civil as well. <laughs> Phew. Before I keep going, is there a politician here? Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. civil, civil, I'm sure you do. So civil servants, in my experience, are very serious about collating the evidence and presenting it. And politicians often will, but then often they'll get distracted by other things. And one of the things of having a publicly available evidence base is it makes it much harder for someone to go against what the evidence is saying. You know, in medicine, if you say, well, this is the best treatment, and everyone says, well, we know this is, it makes your position difficult. But by the fact it's difficult to extract and isn't public, makes it much, much harder for you to persuade your politicians to obey them. I don't know if that's right. Let's chat afterwards, but... Um, thank you very much. I'm interested to know whether what you've done so far in, in, in collating all this data is actually influencing what scientists are looking at now, so that is it helping to direct new science to, to, to fill in the gaps? Um, a bit, so one, and that's one of the things we do. So if you look at about 30 or 40% of the interventions have no evidence associated with them. And we've asked policymakers what they most want to know. And we've identified, so for bee conservation, we've said these are the issues that policymakers and practitioners really want the answer to know the answer and where the evidence is focused. And that's really where we want people to focus attention. So we hope, we hope they'll do so increasingly.
just wondering, uh, so I, the, the idea of having a body of evidence pre-prepared, as it were, obviously makes perfect sense, but one question arises, or it seems to me arises, is context. I mean, evidence lives in a context. Uh, you talked about Brexit. I mean, the context two years ago is different from the context now, you, I think one could argue. So is that a, is that a problematic variable in your mind? Uh, yes. And, uh, and the medical model is fantastic. But they, and, and I'm sure there's a medical here, medic here, they'll shout at me. But basically, people are basically the same. You know, if I said, here's something which we've tested in Australia and Venezuela uh, and Botswana, you'd say, great, I'll, I'll do that, that's fine. Uh, but in areas outside medicine, you know, education, conservation, the policy, the, the context really matters, which is why we go to such effort to provide the detail of the context. So we describe each study so that you can then go through, and we're developing tools to make this easier, so to automate. So you can say, for me, this is how I'm going to score these different studies. So for me, I'm going to decide what to do on this subset of the evidence that I've assessed as to uh, its pertinence. I'm not sure this is actually a valid question, but as I'm a history teacher, so I think that revision and revisionism and the fact that people's views can change. Is there not a risk in having this bank of data that new research doesn't happen in areas that have already been decided on and, and there is the right answer available? Is that not a risk actually preventing people from, from trying to review that and make new decisions and make correct mistakes that are in that existing database? Yeah, and there are... Um, uh, that indisputably happens. I can't think of the examples, but there are, there are cases when we think we just know this. And then, you know, like um, Newtonian physics at the beginning of the century, you know, was just said, we've just got these few fiddly details to, uh, to sort out. And then this guy called Einstein came along and blew it all up. You know, that's, that, that is an issue. Um, yeah, and I think, but it's, you know, the academics are always looking for new opportunities for causing trouble. So I think if something's well established, then that's a great target. Hello. Um one of the things I was a little concerned about in your paper... Oh dear, next question. <laughs> ...was that it was advertised as post-truth. And you didn't address that, I don't think, at all. So because if you think about, as you've just given the example of lots of people being given studies that make sense and they make decisions based on that, but what about our measles epidemics? What about, you know, what that's the post truth context that I'm really concerned about. The other thing is you may get a whole bank of people who are all pro producing studies, for example, around, I don't know, the oil industry. But how do you ensure that other voices appear in that or you get a consensus of material which has all been promoted by petroleum, yeah. etc.? So the, the, the two issues, the, um, the, the, the whole post-truth issue, the, the way I see it is um, uh, that there was, there's um, an ability to just say, well, let's, let's ignore the evidence, let's brush it aside, because uh, and what I want to do is to find ways of just making the evidence much higher profile, so it's much harder for you to, because if there's... If, 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 if evidence is sort of obtained by single individuals, it's much harder to criticize. Whereas in, medicine, in a lot of medicine, you can say, well, this is the, 
the accepted truth. And in the, med the, the measles issue, it was a short-term issue, which has had serious ramifications, but it has bounced back again. It is sort of people are sort of largely coming back, not entirely. Uh, so it's... Um, it, it, and it, it has some more running out to do, I fear. Um, but that's... And the interesting thing is that there's that, and we can think of a couple of other examples like that. But largely, people accept the medical evidence, that largely the consensus is that people say, well, this is what's known, and we believe that. And you have one or two cases in which the measles is catastrophic, where there's some very dodgy research, uh, very much pushed by certain individuals, people with certain agendas, and that has taken off, and that is tragic. But the more we can have a mutual evidence base that we agree with, I think the less, less of that we'll have. In terms of where evidence comes from, that is a really difficult problem, and the medical world is, some, is going some way towards dealing with that. Uh, and we need to find ways, and particularly, that you have to acknowledge the sources of the material and your involvement in that project and make it clear that it's, you know, sometimes it's sort of hidden away and that that's completely unacceptable. And who paid for it? And who paid for that? Exactly. All of that, all of that needs to be transparent. But, uh, but, uh, but I agree, it is, a, it is a, because part of the problem, and it's the problem with a lot of trials, that they're the only people that will pay for it. So what do you do about that? You know, you've, they've got to kind of pay for it, but it's got to be done in an independent way. Hello. Hello. Um, I work in a slightly different field. I work in technology. And um, there's an expression that's used in technology in some of the innovation fields that I work in. And it says experience is a good teacher, but fools learn only by it. And people often forget the second part of that. And what I would like to ask the question here is about are there things that you should use this evidence-based approach for, and do you have concerns about the limitations of it? The example I would like to bring to the audience's attention is that Steve Jobs had absolutely no evidence at all that the iPod was actually going to be successful and he turned the company into the world's most successful organisation. So I would like to ask you know, a sort of slightly different kind hmm. of question from a different field. Well, don't... I think you're being less challenging. I think, didn't Steve Jobs, was it Steve Jobs who had the evidence that it wouldn't work? Everyone said that, that I think for the iPod, the iPod, I think they did some field testing and no, you know, no we're not going to buy those. Uh, um, yeah, so, so there are issues, undoubtedly. I think there's the issue that was raised here about where evidence comes from and how you look at that, and that is a serious issue. And yeah, that sometimes you're going to... Um, an issue we're really interested in is the area of innovation, uh, and we believe there's not enough innovation in conservation, and I think in many other areas as well. Uh, and we really need to find ways of encouraging people to innovate and document that. What tends to happen is that individuals are innovating, but it doesn't get fed back to that process. I think, I think I'm sharing this, and I have to thank me for speaking. <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 